The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. There has always been dispute over which ideas are the most significant, but at least there used to be broad agreement about the great works in each field. Now, from literature to the social sciences, there are claims that previous standards were structures of prejudice and oppression, and calls are heard for greater inclusion. So how do we navigate this new space where there is so little agreement on merit? Joining us to debate what makes a great work of art are literary theorist Stanley Fish, author of How I Live Now, Meg Rossoff, journalist and editor of MS Afropolitan, Mina Salami and writer and essayist Jane Teller. If you enjoyed today's episodes, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website iei.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Sean Curran. Good morning. There's always been dispute over which ideas are most significant, but at least there used to be broad agreement about the hallmarks of quality and the great works in each field. But now, from literature to the social sciences, there are claims that previous standards were structures of prejudice and oppression and there are calls for greater inclusion. So how do we navigate this new space where there's so little agreement on merit? Should the origins of ideas matter as much as their substance? Should we even abandon the notion of great works altogether? Or would this threaten the very survival of our culture and much that we hold to be valuable? So that's the topic for debate this morning, and we have a fantastic panel who to uh, argue and resolve these issues. Stanley Fish is a literary theorist, a legal scholar, an author and public intellectual. He's described himself as a white male who's taught only traditional texts written by canonical male authors of the ultra-canonical English Renaissance. Um, one of our new speakers is Jana Teller. She's a Danish-Austrian author. She's been translated into 30 languages. She's also an economist, and she's got a wide experience of working in Africa. Uh, Minas Salami is a writer and critic. She's the founder of the award-winning blog, Ms. Afropolitan. And Meg Rossoff is an American writer based in London. She's best known for her novel, How I Live Now, and she has won 22 international writing prizes. So we've got a very well qualified panel. So we're going to begin by asking them to pitch 
their view, set out their, their case in response to the question, is the notion of artistic merit just a cover for entrenching the tastes of the privileged? And I'm going to ask Stanley to start. Thank you very much. I'm going to be starting with an example that may be uh, not familiar to some of you, uh, but one that's dear to my heart, and that's uh, American films about, about the mythic West, called Westerners, Western movies. And I'm going to read this because it will prevent me from going uh, on too long. The other day, I happened to be Googling some best Western movie lists, and several of the lists I pulled up did not include the movies Shane, Red River, and My Darling Clementine. Immediately, I knew that these people are crazy. They don't know anything. They don't know what's good. But the question is, how did I know what's good? How did I know that Shane, My Darling Clementine, and Red River are great movies? Certainly not by just looking at them as standalone objects declaring their own quality. No, I saw them, those movies, as objects produced within a tradition of practice, a tradition that gives them both value and intelligibility. I knew how to look at them. I know what radiating significance a, a scene or a gesture in a particular film has, because as a viewer, I see and experience every moment in a film against the background of similar moments and similar and innumerable other films. And I know, too, that the filmmaker is self-consciously alluding to those other films. I know, for example, that when Shane appears out of nowhere riding a horse, that he is one in a long list of Western movie heroes, the stranger with no history, or familial commitment, who comes into town or into the valley, does what needs to be done, and then rides out, never to be seen again, no matter what promises he makes about someday coming back. Now, what would someone who is incapable of viewing these films against the background of their predecessors in the genre see? What would an untutored viewer see? I say not much, just a succession of images, gunfights, landscapes, horses, and men who profess to have little to say but talk on incessantly. My point is that the assessment of merit or value or greatness cannot take place in a vacuum. The eye and the ear must be trained by long experience to see and hear what we can then say is there, and only then can the pronouncement confidently be made, as I made it earlier, this is great. Now, of course, that judgment will be made differently by different observers, even observers who are equally experienced in the knowledge and knowledgeable in the way I have described. But nevertheless, the difference that counts, the difference worth paying attention to, will be the difference registered by parties embedded in the tradition, as opposed to those who come upon these films late at night and know nothing about the genre or its history. Anyone who reads or sees a production of King Lear can arrive at a negative judgment of the play. But when Leo Tolstoy declares that King Lear is incoherent, 
muddled, and basically a piece of trash. We must take him seriously because we know that his verdict is not produced from ignorance. The point is that merit is not a quality an object contains, but a quality that acquires by virtue of its being one item in a tradition of things like it. And finally and briefly, as for the complaint that standards of merit and greatness are often structures of prejudice and oppression, the proper response to that is as opposed to what? The complaint assumes that there exists a standard of judgment that is not slanted, that does not from the outset value certain features and stances more than others. There is no such standard. And if there were, if a measure of judgment were entirely Catholic and excluded nothing, it would not be judgment at all. It would be a catalog of undifferentiated items. Judgment is by definition prejudiced, and prejudiced rather than something to be avoided is the inescapable and necessary lens through which we see and evaluate object in the world. There is no universal standard, and if there were, it would flatten everything out into an infinitely boring landscape. So to conclude, prejudice is good, exclusion is good, inclusion or inclusiveness is at once impossible and a very bad idea. Mina, over to you. Um, I think it depends on what kind of prejudice we're talking about. Um, so I think to respond to the question, the first thing that we need to understand is that we all want to take pleasure in the art that we engage with, whether it's music or paintings or novels. Um, humans are the only species that actually delight in art. And so when we are engaging with whatever art form we're engaging with, we don't want to have this burden and this, this heavy cloud above our head saying, oh, but the artist um, was bigoted in one way or the other. Um, and yet, when we look at how we have judged works of art historically until today, um, it has been a reflection of the times. So previously, it is in societies in the Western world where sexism and racism and classism, homophobia and things like that were accepted, then a lot of the art that was produced was a reflection of that. And of course, nobody wants to have to revisit, say, their favorite childhood novel or a song to which they attach fond memories. Um, looking at it from the prism of maybe, maybe the artist had bigoted views. And so what we have done in modern times is come up with this very nifty concept of meritocracy um, and this notion of merit, which is really um, very popular nowadays to justify, justify privileges um, in the art world. What is funny is that meritocracy was um, a, a phrase that was originally coined by the politician and activist Michael Young um, in a novel that he wrote in 1968, which was called The Rise of the Meritocracy. And he, uh, the novel was set in 2035, and it was a dystopia. So Young was arguing uh, that it would be dreadful if 
the world became meritocratic and nobody cared about injustice anymore. Um, but the only thing that mattered was that whether or not people had merit. The ruling classes, did, they sort of missed the sarcasm of Young's work and instead found uh, a phrase, a neologism that was useful in sort of replacing what had been bigoted views in the art world with this notion of merit. Um, but what is really interesting is that nobody ever asks if it is a question of merit that you have women in uh, lower paid caring jobs or that people of color dominate in the service industry. And so ultimately my response to the question would be that if we're going to assess um, if we're not willing to assess the jobs that nobody wants to do by merit, then we also cannot assess the jobs that everybody would like to do, um, such as be famous in the art world um, by merit. Thank you very much. Jana. Uh, yes. I'll start talking a bit about um, what it is at all we measure when we say quality in art. Um, and I believe it's the ability to resonate the human experience. And that will naturally depend always upon who is the recipient. And therefore, you know, whatever quality criteria we set up will depend on time and place, and of course, particularly on the power structures in place at that, or um, that runs that time and place. And I don't think we can say that it's ever relevant not to have you know, a merit-based uh, quality structure. We all want to be operated uh, when we go into surgery by the best doctor. And we also want to read a book that we think can reach us in the best possible way, rather in you know, some poor language. But it is a problem when over time, it has been a certain group of privileged group, uh, people that have had access to be able once to express themselves in the accepted form, to even to learn it, like writing a reading, and of course later to have access to be published and to the market. And today it's still very much so that lots of artists in the third world surely will have the same merit as many in, in our parts of the world, but they have no access to publishing houses or even to, to spread out. It's actually also the same if you come from small language countries. It, it is a world that is not egalitarian. Actually, Stanley talked a bit about this, that, well, there is no equality in any field in the world, and nor is there in arts. I think one of the ways to deal with this is not to try to create an artificial egalitarian base, but to really recognize historically the injustice has been to include forwards where necessary, uh, and also to dig and say there were women writers who were not known in their time. Sora Neil Hurston, who got discovered you know, much later, really. And there are lots of them. So there are lots of minority artists who deserve larger attention just based purely on merit. But also, the other is to say, there are today still, of course, these power structures in place, and one can try to address them. But you can't address the problem of structural um, power imbalances 
by reducing quality criteria. That would make all of us poorer and also would be unfair to the really great artists that are there who just don't have access, I mean, for minorities. So to me, what is really important is that we yes, separate the issue and understand um, that different quality criteria are in place you know, and should work differently in different times. Having lived in Africa, when I see certain you know, dances of certain tribes, I have no knowledge and no base to judge what is the better than you know, the less good. Maybe I'll learn if I spend a little time there and I can see some people can do something that's astonishing, but only people who know what are the quality criteria will really be able to judge it. So it's also fair enough that there are other forms where um, there are other criteria, like you know, in literature was a Western form that has then become a world art form, but it hasn't always been. But we have to be just open so that those who have the talent to create art at any level will also find a way to have access. And I think that's an important part of how we today can at least try to counter the injustice there is in this world. So we've had three fascinating answers so far to the question, is the notion of artistic merit just a cover for entrenching the tastes of the privileged? I'm now just going to turn no. to Meg. Um, I'm going to guess that most of this audience is reasonably literate, that most of you actually like to read books. Uh, maybe some of you have the same fantasy I do, which is to be king of the book world. And king of the book world would be the person who decides all the books that are published, ever, anywhere, and also gets to decide whose books will never, ever again see the light of day. <laughs> now, obviously, the top of that list would be uh, Jeffrey Archer. Unfortunately, on my list, Dan Brown would also be there. Uh, because basically I'm a tyrant at heart, uh, pretty much any book that depends completely on plot uh, would be in the list of people to have their heads cut off. Um, I've always said to my creative writing students that um, an author who depends on plot is somebody who's disguising the fact that they can't write. I would also get rid of books that are published merely for agenda sakes. Um, books that are badly written, obviously, have to go. And probably a good 73 to 75% of bestsellers. And that's what I would do if I were king. Now, I do have enough self-knowledge to recognize that not everybody in the book world or in the reading world uh, agrees with my taste. When I first lived in New York City in 1980, there was a, a liquor store on the corner, <clears throat> and I was making $7,000 a year in publishing, which even then was paltry. And all the bottles of wine I bought cost $3. That was the limit of what I would spend on wine. And that was fine. I thought $3 wine was absolutely brilliant. And as I started to make more money, I discovered $4 wine and then $5 wine. And this, of course, was a curse because I could no longer enjoy $3 wine. And I've always felt that one should stop at eight pound wine, because if you get addicted to 14, 15, 20 pound wine, you will never again enjoy a crappy bottle of wine after a long day of work. And I think the same can be said about books. Um, there is clearly a place for the literary novel. I'd like to think that I write literary novels. I'm interested in style. I'm interested in deep ideas. 
I win a lot of awards for my books, but I don't have a massive readership, which of course I resent greatly. Um, <laughs> there's an equal place for the kind of books that Jane Austen talked about in Mansfield Park, written by Anne Radcliffe, uh, which were pulp bestsellers. There are equal places now in, in the canon for books that, ha that are starting to address inequality. For instance, in teenage fiction, there's a massive trend in issue-based books at the moment. If your hero isn't uh, in a wheelchair and transgender, your book won't get published. But that's fine. That needs to be addressed. All that stuff, all the exclusion of those characters and those writers from books for many, many decades and centuries needs to be addressed. Will they be the books that last? Probably not. Will they be the Anne Radcliffe books of their day that lots of people consume, that maybe change a few minds here and there? Probably yes. So there is really a good argument to be made for literature that addresses social issues, literature that entertains, and literature that won't last. Thank you very much. So how should we judge a work of art? Should the context surrounding the production of art matter as much as the substance? Minna, if we look at a book that is regarded as a great work, but we discover that the author was a racist or a bigot, does that matter if the writing is good? I mean, that ultimately depends on the reader. Um, so I think you could compare it to the products we purchase, you know, what we wear, what we eat. Um, most of us are likely to have products in our homes or things that we're wearing that were unethically produced to some measure, right? Um, but if we knew that the person who made my exact pair of shoes was a Taliban, say, um, would I feel comfortable wearing them still? Probably not. Um, so I think if you're reading a book and you you can see that the style is good, the person uses a lot of engaging metaphor and so on and so forth, but you also know that they're deeply racist. Um, it, it just really depends on the reader and what kind of person you are, and I, I think ultimately we need to allow for that. Um, but how we judge a piece of art, whether it's literature or artwork, ultimately um, will have to do also with the context of where the art was created and how. Um, but I think we're so averse to that in this kind of patriarchal, Eurocentric society, which is the dominant form of society across the world, um, where everything we, we do, we want to sort of measure and rank. That's our criteria for judgment. Um, whereas art, both the way that it's produced and the way that it's uh, engaged with, is something that has to do with, with feeling and with emotion and with, with spirit, almost, you could say, by which I just mean our, our moods, our energy, how we look at the world. And so if we're going to judge art by what it actually is, then we would need to bring in a more holistic perspective. And that would obviously also involve the context. And I think enrich art in the long run, because we would feel that we, we perhaps don't want to engage with work that is created by someone who's deeply racist, in the same way we don't want to buy products by people who, whose views we strongly disagree with. Can, can I jump in on this? The, there, there was a, a children's writer in the 1950s and 60s who was one of the best. 
He wrote a book that won the Carnegie Prize called A Rope of Grass, I think. Now, I had never heard of him. I grew up in America. I'd never heard his name spoken until somebody said, oh, yes, there was this guy. He was very, very popular in the 50s and 60s. He turned out to be a pedophile, and his books have been completely erased from history. So I immediately went online and went to A Books because I was curious, and I ordered one of his books, this one that won the prize. And it's one of the most beautifully written tender books about children that I had ever read. Now, I'm slightly prejudiced because the most influential primary school teacher that I had was also a pedophile. We didn't know it at the time, but he's in jail at the moment. Uh, he's a very old man. There are interesting shades of gray in these subjects, I think. If you particularly love children, whether it's sexually or, or platonically, your perspective on how you write about children or how you teach children is going to be different. Now, were they wrong to, to remove his books from all bookshops? I don't even really have an answer to that, but I'm extremely interested in the conversation. Stanley, do you think they were wrong to remove a book because it was written Absolute, by Peter Fire? Absolutely. One of the phrases that has been used here, and you've just used it, is deeply racist. One of the things that we are told today by uh, the uh, proprietors of what I call the virtue regime uh, is that everyone is deeply racist. That means that there's nothing that you can read uh, with impunity and pleasure because you will always be reading the work of a racist. This is what is going on in universities, at least in the United States, these days. It's a version of the political movement which I called lefter than thou. Um, in, uh, in the 80s and 90s, where you discover in some venerated person or work traces of the deadly virus, whatever it is, uh, misogyny, uh, racism, anti-Semitism, etc. And then you write an expose, and then someone writes an expose of you discovering in your past that you put on blackface uh, at a party. Like, isn't this incredibly dreary, the whole thing? I, I hear, tend here at this moment to want to quote Jonathan Swift in his great satiric piece, A Tale of a Tub, where he said, the outside of things is infinitely preferable to the inside. In other words, don't look so closely into all of this stuff. Just enjoy it. Yana. Literature is all about looking on the inside. And uh, one of my favorite authors is Knut Hamsun, who unfortunately is a Norwegian writer, who unfortunately in his later years had Nazi sympathies and also met with Hitler, actually. And one can excuse and say, okay, he was old and didn't quite know anything, but it's still not such a nice thing. Yet, I have never found any trace of fascism in any of his books. And luckily, so many years later, I feel I can allow myself to read it just as literature. But there is an ethical issue here. Uh, and what if somebody like Ola Breivik, the mass murderer from Norway, writes a book as he has said he intends to do in prison? What if it's a really good book? What if it has very high literary quality? So um, shouldn't he have his freedom of expression and be allowed to publish it? Shouldn't we read it to even understand what goes on in such a murderer's mind? But what about the, the victims and their uh, families? Shouldn't they be allowed to not have to be 
um, reading about such a crime again and again. I think there are lots of different um, levels. I think you talk about the different gray zones in this. I think, again, we have to address can I say, the unfairness, the bigotry, and so on, on the direct structure. So if, for example, Breivik should write a book, um, at least he should not be allowed to get the proceeds of it. Or if the book that Meg was talking about, maybe a different way than taking it down from the shelves. If one, some pen, whatever, looks and says, you can't discover anything pedophile here that could be problematic for children to read, then just make sure that he doesn't earn money on it. I mean, there's so many different levels of addressing bigotry. And I also think at any moment go against a bigot writer in a panel or a whatever event. But if he writes beautiful books, let them be out there and let people also judge it. Because we do judge literature on their inherent human truth. And that somehow speaks to universal humanity. And one takes distance for something that is distasteful to our values as human beings. Uh, Mina, how do you feel about banning books? Um, I, I don't think that we should ban any books. The question here is not, um, oh, we shouldn't be allowed to read books that are written by a pedophile or a racist or a sexist. The question is how we engage with them, how we judge them, if we're allowed to acknowledge that the, the author of the work has problematic views. And so much of this discussion is framed around the idea of there being an either or. And that's why I'm sort of pushing for us to look at the question more holistically and to think about, um, as readers, how we can sort of place more value on our own attention, on our own capital, and on our time. Um, do we, there's so many books in the world. Why are we gonna read, why would we choose to read a book that was written by a pedophile, perhaps we do, but we, we should be able to question and justify and bring those things into conversation, which I think will ultimately just really produce better art. Okay, thank uh, you. Well, uh, Mina brings yeah. us on. I, so, I, sorry. I, I was just going to say one last very tiny thing, which is that isn't the subject of literature exactly what we're talking about? Isn't it looking at what makes human beings frail and what makes them wrong and what makes them flawed and uh, what makes them creative. I mean, all of those things are what we're looking at when we're writing books. So why are we not allowed to bring those things into conversation when we're judging them? That's when we go into like, oh, we should just look at the style. Category mistake. We should just look at the grammar. We should just look at the poetry. We, if we know that an artist puts in a kind of interior quality into the work, then we should also be able to, to discuss that. We don't have to assess and say, oh, this should be banned, this is right or wrong. But we should be able to bring that to the fore without no, people I, saying, oh, I, no, you're, you're, you're censoring. I agree. I agree. Stanley? I once had a colleague who was a thoroughly, how shall I say, unscrupulous and uh, mendacious and manipulative person with great charm. I would invite him to my class occasionally. He was a linguist to speak on matters uh, of technical linguistics. And something remarkable happened when he got in front of a class. All of his moral infirmities were burned away by the zeal for his craft and his subject. And you could just see it so that within a few minutes, he was entirely immersed uh, in the task of explaining and analyzing and atomizing uh, something he knew well and was committed to. When that happened, I didn't say to myself uh, what was certainly true, 
but actually he's untrustworthy. You can't turn your back on him. And a whole lot of other judgments that I would have made, and that would have been entirely inappropriate, as I appreciated his performance in my class. Don't make category mistakes. Addressing bigotry is a good thing, but do you have to do it all the time? How infinitely boring. We're going to move on to our second theme now, which is should popularity be the main indicator of artistic merit? And because you had such interesting things to say about this, Meg, I'm just going to ask you, what's wrong with popularity? Well, it's like when people say, do you worry that your audience will like your books? I always say, don't be ridiculous. My audience has terrible taste. Um, I had a friend who was a violinist, and I went to see her uh, concert, and she got a standing ovation, and I went backstage, and I said, um, wow, that was kind of exciting. You got a standing ovation. And she said, I don't care what they think. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but, you know, popularity is not the same as quality, and I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with popularity, but especially in literature now, popularity tends to be created by Waterstones. Waterstones puts it on the front table, everybody buys it. You know, if I had 10 May I just say, somebody, the publisher has bought that place on Waterstones' table, it's not even... Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but then there are books that break through that. You know, there was a book called The Hair with Amber Eyes that my agent handled, sold for an absolutely paltry advance, 1,500 pounds, to the 27th publisher who would look at it, and Waterstones wouldn't distribute it, and it was picked up by the independents, and it became, became an international bestseller. It does sometimes happen. There are occasionally popular bestsellers which weirdly cross over to be uh, really good books. But, but, you know, very often people say, well, I just, I just want to read something for the fun of it, and that's very, very, far too often for my taste, that happens to be Dan Brown. And I don't begrudge people reading Dan Brown, but do I think that indicates any kind of literary quality? Of course not. Uh, I'll just, uh, popularity is a totally different quality than literary quality. They can coincide, they don't always, or they rarely do, but sometimes they do. And they're, again, you know, it's a scale. But it's quality in itself, I think, to write something that a lot of people find entertaining or a lot of people find something in. But most often, of course, the books that are there at any given time, they won't last for, for very long because what they're hitting is the right here and now average knowledge of the largest number of people. And where literary quality is interesting, Milan Kundera has this concept uh, that he wrote about in the Testament of the novel. He says the history of the novel is where you know, the writer is a little bit ahead of everyone else. That's the curve that is drawn of you know, anything really interesting happening in, in the literary world, and everyone else is below that line. And generally what hits the popularity scale is far below the line of that history of the novel. But also, as a, an author myself, one has different experiences. My, uh, the book I think is by far my, my best is probably the least selling one. And the one that today is known everywhere, nobody wanted the first 10 years of its life. Uh, I had problems getting it published. When it finally got published, I think for the first two years, it sold around 600 copies, which even in Denmark isn't very much. 
And then when you won a big prize, uh, then there were lots of articles why this one was initially written for young people, even if today it's read also by adults. But there are lots of articles why no young person should ever be allowed to read it. It has been banned. It has been banned in Western Norway in schools and so on. And yet, today, it's both probably my most internationally recognized book and the most best-selling. So I just think that these things are so arbitrary. And of course, again, as a writer yourself, you, you can't always judge. For me, it was the same book when nobody wanted it as today when it's very famous. And the quality, of course, is again the same. We say it's also popularity is, has nothing to do with literary quality. Do you agree, Stanley? Uh, I think that popularity and literary quality, just as you said, can go together or can come apart. Uh, my wife, a feminist critic named Jane Tompkins, wrote a book years ago called Sensational Designs, in which she pointed out that in the late 19, mid and late 19th century, the most popular novelists were women. Uh, not only Louisa May Alcott uh, for Uncle Tom's Cabin, but several other women like Susan Warner had massively strong sales. In the academy, the literary academy, in both Britain and the United States, popularity is often seen as a prima facie index of non-quality. That seems to me to be, uh, that seems to me uh, to, uh, uh, to not hold up. Now one understands why the women writers of the 19th century in America were resisted by their male counterparts. The novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne referred to Louisa May Alcott and others as that damned mob of scribbling women. Uh, but at a certain point uh, in the mid-50s uh, and 60s, uh, those works uh, were uh, rediscovered. And now, for example, Uncle Tom's Cabin is a staple uh, of literary courses in the United States. So I think the history of the relationship between popularity and merit can be very varied and is certainly changing. And as for uh, how much money a book is uh, originally sold for, John Milton's Paradise Lost was uh, sold to a printer who got the rights for five bucks. Minute, isn't this a form of elitism? where we're looking down upon the book reading or the book buying public. We're looking down on the masses and saying they don't really know what's good and bad. I think it is a question of elitism, but not quite how we generally think of it as. Um, so I think we have many different types of popularity. You could say that there's a popularity which is politically manufactured. So as, as Meg was talking about with Waterstones, um, so a sort of hyper-capitalist manufactured popularity. Um, in our times, there's popularity via social media, so we have influencers constantly telling us what to like and what not to like. But I do think that there is something which we might call genuine popularity. And what I think is happening is that elites are not really allowing for genuine popularity, which is something that is actually really quite beautiful um, if that occurs with a book, for example, that people just love it so much that they start to spread it via word of mouth. And there's so much interest from, from the ruling classes and the upper levels of society um, that just don't allow for that because so much money is pumped into dictating in one way or another what should be popular. Also, when we speak about literary works. That is also coming from an elite um, way of thinking, of saying that this 
type of work is what people should be reading, and this is better, you know, one type of fiction is better than Dan Brown, and so on and so forth. Okay, well, that leads us very nicely onto our third and final theme, which is should we abandon the notion of great works? And if we did, what would be the consequence? Stanley, what is a great work? I don't think there's any simple answer uh, to that question. Uh, it seems to me, again, speaking from the point of view of an academic, a great work is a, is a work that uh, provides employment to my students who can then write about it uh, and analyze it uh, and get promoted. Uh, that is a great work, uh, is a work that either bears infinite commentary because of something in it or has been the object of infinite commentary because of the ambitions of those uh, who write on it. I don't want to abandon the category of greatness. If you ask me about novels, films, works of art, I'm going to apply the label great to some of them uh, unhesitatingly. If you ask me why, I will then ask, I will then attempt to enter with you into a conversation about this feature and that feature, this line and that line. And I will say things, and I often say this to my students, I would give perhaps a part of a limb to have been able to write that line or that verse. When that happens, and it happens with reassuring frequency, I know that I'm in the, uh, I know that I'm in the presence of something great. But any def definition more formal than that one will, I think, fail. Uh, Minna, we talked in the beginning, you know, we talked about this debate about our culture and great works of our culture. I mean, how do you feel about when we talk about our culture? Are we actually then excluding things that we don't know about, but which could be great works? Um, I mean, I don't know who you would be directing that question to. Well, if we start saying, okay, Shakespeare, Milton, uh, these are the great works, is that, is that too limiting a definition? Is it too many white men? Yeah. <laughs> Jane Austen. Um, so what is important to understand is how we judge great works once again. I mean, when we look at the criteria, um, if, you, if we go all the way back to ancient Greece and we, we look at, um, I think it was Plato who had this idea of the golden ratio, and then you have people today still applying this to celebrities and um, works of art, architecture, sculptures, and so on. Um, my problem is really with this kind of methodology of how we are trying to evaluate what kind of work is great or not. So it's not if it's a white man who produced something, it is, is it reproducing a tired agenda which is rooted in sexism and racism and all of these kinds of things, and which is also soulless and emotionless and indifferent and robotic and mathematical, um, which is not what, I mean, art is, it can be those things, but it can also be something that evokes so much more, that, that really shakes our core and makes us um, emotionally change, transforms our lives. And these should be elements that we're bringing into the conversation about great works. Um, we're never, I think as Stanley said in the beginning, um, you know, art is not democratic. We can never force everybody to like the same kind of art, and that is a good thing. Um, but I wonder why we feel that bringing in different types of opinions should mean at any point that we should therefore abandon 
the kind of evaluation of great works. So why, why can't we have the conversation still, even though we also have different criteria for evaluating? So, I mean, in shorthand, is, is a kind of a great work something that tells us something about the meaning of life, or it explains to us what the point Partly, of life is? Partly, but I, I mean, I absolutely think that talent and skill also contribute to what make a great work. But if I'm looking at um, Titian's Venus of Urbino, for example. I can see that this is clearly somebody who is very talented. I mean, it's a beautiful painting. I, I love it um, in, for, for the skill, but I can also see that this is a beginning of a history um, in art where women could only function as sexual objects. Um, it's, it tells a history where whiteness was set as a beauty ideal, all of these things. Um, and, I, and I'm going to evaluate the work with, with both of these criteria. Uh, and, and what I resent is the culture which sort of belittles me bringing in the personal, the emotional, and is almost forcing me to value this simply based on the, the, the paint, the brush strokes of the artist. And, and if looking at Titian brings you to, I've forgotten her first name, Gentileschi, uh, uh, Artemisia. Artemisia Gentileschi, doing that beautiful painting of her throwing the man who raped her down a well, does she stab him first? I can't remember. She beheads him. Yes, Maybe she yes, beheads she, him no, and throws him down no, as well. Uh, then, then you get a little bit of both, I think. I mean, the, I mean, I think there is something to be said for works of art that do slightly, ever so slightly change the world. So you think of what Catch-22 did to the 1960s generation about uh, thinking about war, uh, what Beloved did to the 1970s generation thinking about race. I mean, there, there are books that, that ha have literary merit but have something above literary merit as well that actually do change the conversation just that much. And even 20, 30, 50 years later, they're still slightly changing the conversation. Would they have changed the conversation if they hadn't had literary mer merit? Well, they might have just disappeared because they wouldn't have been they 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 wouldn't have been interesting enough. I mean, I you know you have to if you go back and read Catch Twenty Two or Beloved, you know, two of my favorite books. They're so structurally interesting. They're so beautifully written, and they they last. You can give them to somebody now, even though I read them fifty years ago. I can well not quite. I I can go back to them now and still feel that I learn something new every time I read it, that it's an incredibly beautiful uh, work of art, and that I'm still learning from it, and I can give it to my daughter or her daughter or whatever and say, read this, this will change your, this will change your mind. Um, Jana, what would happen, I want to know, what would happen if we did say, right, we're going to scrap all the great works, we're not going to study them anymore, we're not going to talk about them? In a certain way, I think the market has already done that. Not in circles like ours or in, you know, in the secluded literary world. It's a bit funny also we discuss elitism, but this is, you know, discussing literature is already such an elite world today. Um, so what will happen is that nivellation that we have seen that the market has done, that anything that reached the broadest, lowest common denominator is what is then pushed forward because money has become the actual criteria, not for literary quality, but for the kind of quality that the uh, people in power who decide what comes out and gets into the Waterstone windows will be uh, spread out. 
So as I see it, unfortunately, the market has um, overtaken this kind of debate and done away with greatness, and we should struggle to hold on to it because where greatness come in, what, what Stanley talks about is it's that surprise when something in us resonate in a different way in our understanding of ourselves, our humanity, and that often will come, it's a slightly different use of phrase, it's a different structure in language or that, you know, it's just unusual enough that it makes us see things suddenly in a whole different way. And that is a quality in itself and a greatness in itself. And the thing is, what is very important to come in as a, I think a whole different category is what Mina talks about, because it is true. If you look in the Italian museums and you see all these paintings, and I'm even white, I get a Maria shock. This thing of you cannot be innocent enough as a woman and ever be good enough to live up to that beautiful image painted everywhere. You know, so it does have impact, which is of course, we don't have the time for that, but it's the other part of discussion that any piece of art has some impact, maybe less than Facebook today, but over time we, we have it. And there is a responsibility. Stanley. I want to restate the emphasis on craft, which in my case is largely one attached to literary works. I wrote a book a few years ago called How to Write a Sentence. And the sentences that I included for analysis in the second half of the book were all sentences which I believe, to use an old phrase, knock your socks off when you read them. Here's one of them. It's from a book that is, I think, indisputably great although probably not that many here in the audience have read it, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And in that book, the hero, suddenly alerted to the fact that there's something in his life that is missing, starts running down the street to go in search of that something. And his wife and children come out of the house and beg him to stop and not to abandon them. And here is the line from Bunyan, but the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. Now that's a sentence. That's a sentence. That's a very positive note on which to end. Please join me in thanking our fantastic panel, Stanley Fish, Mina Salami, Yana Teller, and Meg Russell. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iei.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.